Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome, I'm Mark Brumley, and we are here today with Father Robert McTague, SJ. SJ stands for Warrior of Jesus. And we're here to talk about Father McTague's new book, Real Philosophy for Real People. I want to tell you a little bit about Father McTague, and as people who watch these regular Facebook interviews know, I like to read from the the cover of the book because, well, frankly, that helps promote the book. Um, Father Robert McTague, SJ, Society of Jesus, is a member of the Maryland province of the Society of Jesus. He has lectured widely on philosophy and theology, a member of the National Ethics Committee of the Catholic Medical Association. He is host and producer of the radio show, The The Catholic Current, on the Station of the Cross. Now, I actually listen to this radio show, and I'm Mm -hmm. going to give Father McTague an opportunity to tell everybody else how to listen. Uh, So, Father McTague, welcome to the show, and tell us how to listen. Uh, glad to be with you. Glad to be your guest. You've been a guest on, on my show also. The show runs live Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, if you're in the northeastern part of the United States, there's a whole variety of towers. Go to where our towers and schedules are at the thestationofthecross.com. You can also listen live or in podcast form on our app, the iCatholic Radio app. And we're available on every podcast platform you can think of, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, if it can download audio you can find us. Very well said. I wanted to get that at the beginning of the show. If we have time, we'll do it at the end too. But I want to get it in the beginning of the show just to make sure we got it in because we may find ourselves deeply immersed in the world of philosophy and may forget where we are and what we're doing. So That sounds about right. Yeah, well, thank you for being with us today. So real philosophy, real people. You know, the initial reaction a lot of people have when they hear the word philosophy is, oh my goodness. Now, some people may react and may they hear may hear philosophy. They may be, react thinking, well, this is sort of like Will Rogers homespun wisdom, if they know who Will Rogers was. And other mm-hmm. people may react in the other direction and say, this is egghead, highbrow stuff. Uh, what is real philosophy for real people? Well, well, let's deal with, with the caricatures. One caricature is, not taking anything away from Will Rogers, of course, is that it's just kind of chicken soup for the soul, very soothing, anodyne fortune cookie statements. Uh, and it's nice to be nice to the nice. Well, no, that's not it. On the other hand is, you know, the utterly abstruse, irrelevant caricature of how many angels can dance on, on the head of a pin, that sort of thing. And no, it's neither obvious fortune cookies and it's not mere pedantic academic nonsense in the worst sense of the word. What it does is it takes what we all have been living with, birth, life, death, uh, good and evil, struggle, confusion, faith, and reason, and brings to bear tools that the Western intellectual tradition has collected over the millennia and expresses them in a new idiom to get you to see clearly so that you can act rightly. Uh, The goal of the book is to help you to be a lie detector, a truth detector, a lie refuter, and a truth promoter. And by means of very simple diagrams and some stories, and every now and again something that involves a footnotes, I can bring a person of uh, 
ordinary intelligence and above average curiosity to a pretty high degree of practical sophistication and philosophy. That's the promise of the book. Wow, well, all those things certainly sound enticing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Before we get into exploring them, I want to throw out another objection. This isn't the objection from the man on the street who says, this is, you know, high flute nonsense. This is uh, an objection that I found in a book by Stephen Hawking and uh, Leonard Mladenov that runs as follows. And after Hawking introduces the book talking about how great the universe is and all the mysteries of the universe, he says, traditionally these questions are questions for philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly in physics. So whereas, you know, the man on the street may say, well, that's well beyond me, too highfalutin and irrelevant for my life. People like Stephen Hawking say, well, philosophy is dead. It, it just isn't up to speed with, with modern thought and doesn't take into consideration all the great things that science tells us. So how would you respond to that? Right, well, obviously, uh, Dr. Hawking hasn't read anything of my Jesuit brother in Christ, Father Robert Spitzer. <laughs> public author of Ignatius Press. Uh, Father Spitzer helped me to find my vocation as a Jesuit. We were in doctoral studies together, wrote under the same director, and Father wrote a very important afterword of the book. If you want a 10-page summary of the 300-page book, it's right there in the afterwards. Well, no, no, the short answer is no. Uh, he's got a very truncated view of both science and philosophy, if that's what, what he maintains. And he needs to brush up on, on his history of the philosophy of science. There's, look, if everything you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. If all you have are empirical methods, then you're going to have a commitment not to science, but to a kind of scientism, that science is the alchemy that unlocks everything. But, of course, no one believes that, and no one ever uh, works that way. You know, when his wife said, you know, honey, I love you, he'd say, can that be falsified? Can that be measured? You know, th- no, that, that, that's, that's nonsense. And part of the, the challenge of this book is to say, look, all those things that people use to, to dismiss what we all live with anyway, we, we can put the lie to that. Paul Weiss said, uh, philosophers let theories get in the way of what they and everyone else know. I mean, consider this. Come to Desperate State University and visit with, with Dr. Smith, who's going to tell you that nothing exists outside of his mind. Uh, please RSVP so we know how many people are available for lunch. <laughs> really? We're doing that? You know, uh, Dr. Smith doubts his own existence, but he knows who to call if direct deposit is late. The the real challenge is is to have a philosophy that enables us to live the lives we're already living. You know, when some smug academic in his tweed jacket puts his elbow up on the mantelpiece holding a cocktail and talks about we can't be sure about everything and how do we know we're not all in a dream, you just go up to him and whisper in his ear, dude, your fly's open. If he looks, he's a fraud. (laughs) Well said. Well, it reminds me of this organization that I founded some years ago, the International Solipsist Society. Of course, the solipsist is my own belief is own existence. And we've had annual conferences every year. Nobody shows up but me. I don't know why. Uh, I didn't go last year because I didn't think anybody would be there, right? But that's the absurdity of, of a lot of you know, these modern philosophies. Well, yes. well, you know, a student had asked me, how do you know solipsism isn't true? And I said, someone told me. 
<laughs> That's right. Well, if we can um, delve into the book and move beyond our, our mutual uh, exchanging of jokes, philosophy jokes. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about your book is how very accessible it is. We, we, we kind of have talked about uh, the question of philosophy from the point of view of you know the average person and then philosophy from the perspective of the modern scientist. But whether you're talking about the average person or the scientist, a lot of people will just assume that philosophy is not very accessible. Can you, first of all, can you tell us in a very accessible way what philosophy is and then how you approach the subject in this book to make it something that is really to, to, to steal from Mortimer Adler everybody's business? Well, let, let me start with the accessibility question. I know it's accessible because it's battle-tested for 20 years in the classroom full of 18 and 19-year-olds who didn't want to be there. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that says a lot. I'm really confident uh, about that. And by the end of the semester, people were changing majors to study philosophy. So the accessibility, I'm, I'm fully confident. One of the reasons it's accessible is because I'm a terrible artist. The, the, uh, I wanted to have uh, really helpful reminders of the philosophical tools I make available. So I teach through simple diagrams because that's all I can draw is triangles and circles and, and stick figures. <laughs> uh, the classical definition is, is uh, the love of wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is getting your shit together and then mm -hmm. living accordingly. It, it's, it's knowing how to rightly value what is rightly valuable so you can rightly desire what is rightly desirable and then act accordingly. That, that's it very, very simply. And what this book does is it takes you from where you are and ordinary human experience and teaches you to look wider and look deeper. And what you discover pretty readily is you can get to a high degree of sophistication. You also recognize nearly everyone is lying to you and nearly everyone else is lies. So I would tell the students, be prepared or be surprised. If you stick with me, you'll be prepared. I was talking to somebody that uh, read your book, and I don't think he had read it, you know, with uh, an intense focus, but he had read it. He read through it, and mm -hmm. he he said, and also the people that prepped for the show said to, to ask you this question, he thought this was an intriguing thing, so, I, so I'm going to pose it to you, or I'm going to ask you to uh, discuss a little bit. The ethical wedding cake. Right. Okay. So talk to us about uh, the ethical wedding cake. People treat truth claims and moral claims as if they're in isolation. So if I say abortion is horrific, uh, that somehow that's not related to anything else and more than likely is only an expression of my emotional state that I feel icky when I think about abortion. And no, 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 that, that's not true. Uh, pull on the thread, get the whole rug. Reality is, is a system. So when you make a moral claim, Underneath that is a view of what human nature is, and underneath that is a view of what reality is, metaphysics. And they, it's always a package deal. So, uh, for example, if I say that the, the highest good is love of God and neighbor, but then I say, oh, what's my view of human nature? Well, I, I have to be a scientist, so, so human nature can only be biology. Oh, but... I'm a Catholic, so I have to believe in the immortality of the soul. So in my metaphysics, there are things that are real that are not physical. Well, that doesn't, you know, it's like you're, you're, not only do your socks not match, your, your shoes don't match, and you have an umbrella when it's not raining. 
what this does is no, you, you've got to have things fit together. And case in point, uh, I was asked by, by a sister to go to an eighth grade class to talk to the kids about freedom because their view is that uh, freedom is I get to do whatever the heck I want. It's licensed. Okay. And I walked into class and I said, hey, girls, two girls in the front row, have a look at your glasses, please. And I gave them to me and I said, they're mine now. Now, I know you won't say that I've stolen them because that would be imposing your morality on me, which is inconsistent with your definition of freedom. I outweigh both of you put together, so I'll smack you down if you try to take them back. I mean, jaws drop. And I said, do you want to live in a world where uh, that's, uh, that and worse will happen to you every day at every moment? And they said, no. And I said, that's the world you bought when you endorse that moral claim. Once you say freedom is right, I get to do whatever the heck I want, congratulations, you've just bought yourself a world. And then they said, well, then we want a different definition of freedom. And I said, all right, let me show you how to do that. So what we're always the beneficiaries or the victims of one another's philosophies and one another's moral claims. So when you make a moral claim, I'll always ask, does this help us to build the house in which we would want to live? And so that litmus test of can it be livable, that's really decisive for what the ethical wedding cake is about. Reality is a package deal. There are never merely simple statements. And I teach you how to think broadly and how to think deeply, not only to, to self-critique, but to critique others. Interesting. So, Interesting. so listening to you, I hear you, you, refer you, refer you metaphysics, ethics, these are sort of, sort of, they used to call them $5 words, I guess they're $25 words. Right. Just explain these basic terms for us so that everybody sure. can follow along. Uh, ethics is the art and science of evaluating human behavior in terms of ought and ought not. Why would you call it a science? No one says, oh, I got my ethics lecture on Wednesday and my ethics lab on, on, on Thursday. <laughs> no, science in the classical sense of the term of a body of knowledge derived from principles. There really are black and white things that you can't not know and you ignore at your peril. You know, love your kids, don't eat grandma, do good, avoid evil. There is also <laughs> a legitimate threat. Yeah, well, yeah, surprise. Um, and so, uh, so in terms of it being an art, there's legitimate gray, you know, care for your offspring. Okay. Provide for their education. Okay. Where do we send Johnny to school this year? That's legitimate gray. That's the art that involves moral imagination, prudence, creativity. Uh, anthropology is what does it mean to be a human being? How is a human being like and unlike other things? Uh, I have weight, I have dimension, I have color, I, I have shape, none of which I'm happy with at the moment, but, there, but, I, but I'm more than that. I'm more than just uh, an object. I'm also a subject. Is there anything about me that's not physical? I tell the students, I'm more than my body, but my body is where you can begin to find me. If there's something about me that's not physical, what is it and what does it have to do with the physical? What's metaphysics? It's an attempt at a systematic and comprehensive account of the real. Is there anything more than just stuff, physical things that we can touch? If there is, what is it? And these are questions we all ask ourselves all the time anyway. We don't have to be uh, bewildered or discouraged or make excuses to say, some of those words sound funny. Yes, they do. You can learn how to use them in a hurry. So, so you talked about metaphysics, you talked about anthropology, you talked about ethics, and um, I think a lot of people would say, well, okay, as I think about it, I do have an idea of what it 
what what's real and what's not real. I do have an idea what it means to be a human being. I do have an idea of, of right and wrong and so on. So, Father, I'm following you. I get the basics of this. But where I have a problem is when we start getting into all of this sophisticated language or sophisticated talk, doesn't that tend to confuse things? Right. Yeah. And that's and that's why you need my book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what type of conversation do you want to have? Now, again, if I were at a, a seminar with, with other professors, we, we'd use a set of vocabulary and argue about footnotes and histories and things that are really inside baseball that don't do people a lot of good. And if you don't find that it does you a lot of good, that's, that, that's okay. Right. But to be able to defend your view of right and reason, of right and wrong, that's really important. When you're able to say, you know, that doesn't sound right, but I can't put my finger on it and I really need to, this book will help you to put your finger on it and give you a vocabulary instead of conceptual tools that you can share with others so that you can resolve your dispute with something other than bombast. Well, your opening uh, chapter is titled Thinking and Living Humanly Well. And that just the title of that chapter is so rich. Oftentimes we don't link thinking well and living well, but you're mm-hmm. going to make the point. You're going to make the point that these things go together. And then you have this word humanly thrown in. So you're, you're kind of bringing together, I guess, the three things that you talk about, you know, metaphysics, anthropology, and ethics. But just in a, you know, in a brief way, talk a little bit, if you would, about how living, thinking and living and humanly all go together with the word well in that sense. Okay. Uh, We, uh, human beings are not, are not machines. We don't just calculate. We don't just do Boolean algebra in a hurry. Uh, for example, I, when I was getting ready to take my first vows as a Jesuit and I was having dinner with my mentor, the late great Dr. Paul Weiss, he said with characteristic bluntness, so who the hell are you? How come you got chosen? And I said, <laughs> why did you marry your wife? Did you add up a column of numbers that said, and therefore I must marry Victoria? You got to the point where you said, no, I can't not do this and still be honest. And that's something that you can't capture in either a telescope or, or a microscope. So we're, we're not machines. We're also not angels. I warn my students against what I call the rationalist fallacy, which says, if only I explain myself clearly enough, then people will understand and agree. <laughs> well, Mark, we all know th- that's a trail of tears. Okay, that, that's a trail of tears because we have bodies and we have emotions and we have a will. And sometimes we have to dispute about things that are not entirely certain and we need to move people to action. And that's where you need persuasion. You need rhetoric, which has to be rooted in truth. Otherwise, it's mere sophistry. So we also uh, live not in isolation, but in community. And so to think and live humanly well is to recognize that we have intellect, we have free will, we have body, we have emotions, emotions, and we live with other people. And learning how to do that in a coordinated, effective way is what it means to think and live humanly well. It sounds like there is a relationship between what you're describing there, which we can broadly call ethics, and uh, what we're going to do several weeks from now when we go to vote and participate in the political community. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that? Okay. Well, I I talk a lot about about the book and about conscience. 
and I've been writing about conscience in my column. By the way, I have a weekly column on Mondays at alitea.org, A-L-E-T-E-I-A.org. I've been writing for them for about six years. I've got about 300 columns there. Uh, when people start talking about uh, voting, they, they get to the word conscience, and they use it as uh, uh, the famous story by Ring Lardner that ended with, shut up, he explained. Why are you voting for X, Y, or Z? Because conscience. That's not an answer. That's not an answer. We think of uh, conscience as my escape hatch from being held accountable. That, that's not true. Or conscience is whatever I happen to feel at the moment or want at the moment, and then I get to have it because I can say conscience. And then somehow, not only is that reasonable, it's also Catholic. And it's neither reasonable nor Catholic. There is a subjective dimension to conscience. Your conscience isn't mine. I have to act on mine, not yours. But there's also an objective dimension as well. We both are called to live to the standards of what it means to be a good human being. So there has to be this asymptotic relationship of my conscience catching up with what human conscience requires. And there are some things we, we can't not know. Uh, you know, again, do good and avoid evil. Life is the premier value. Every other right flows from life. You can't meaningfully argue against that, and you can't put your fingers in your ears to my challenges to you by shouting conscience. And I, I am working on an essay I hope to have soon uh, finished called uh, Before We Vote, Let's Remember to Reason. Before We Vote, Let's Remember to Reason. Wow, that sums it up very nicely. And yes, a lot of people, you. as you say, they think vote the, the, the they have disposed of, well, this is what my conscience tells me to do, but they oftentimes don't, uh, not, not only with respect to voting, but with respect to many things, they don't often form their consciences well, and then they right. don't often exercise the kind of basic due diligence that a conscience bearer ought to have with respect to the facts right. and with respect to principles. Right. And part of what my book does is it gives you the tools for not only critiquing what you're being told, but to critique yourselves. Human beings have a marvelous capacity to lie them to themselves, to kid themselves, and to want things that are not good for them. So forming your conscience doesn't mean gritting your teeth and shouting, I want what I want, after you're done gritting, of course. Uh, rather, uh, it's conforming your patterns of thinking and your patterns of desiring and acting in what is, in fact, true and good. And it's not just like learning the times tables. Uh, having a well-formed conscience is a very high-maintenance project. We're talking with Father Robert McTagg about his book, Real Philosophy for Real People. He's telling us a little bit about conscience and politics, and that's a topic that's certainly perennial, and yet it's at the same time uh, quite seasonal, as we might say. Yeah. Uh, yes. Father, I was uh, when I first read the manuscript of your book, um, I, I, I had an inter interesting reaction to the second chapter. Mm -hmm. This is a philosophy book, right? And mm -hmm. the second chapter is entitled Faith and Reason, Who Needs Them? It opens right. with a quote from John Paul II uh, from his encyclical Fides et Ratio, which means faith and reason. What is a discussion of faith and reason doing in a philosophy book? Someone might say, well, faith, you know, that's theology. That's the business of theology. And maybe if you're trying to defend the rationality of faith, you might say, well, that's fundamental theology or apologetics. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, I, 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 I'm not, on faith and reason. All right, I, I'm not cheating. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, throw in scripture and say because the Bible told me so. That, that's not that's not what it's for. Faith and reason often talk about the same things: hmm. good and evil, life and death, etc. Many people of faith know some things, and a lot of people of faith also practice philosophy. But I, I drew, I, I made reference to faith for a particular reason: that faith and reason need not dismiss each other need not be antagonistic. And also, uh, just as historically philosophy has given vocabulary to faith that's been very helpful for theology, for example, talking about Eucharist, you borrow from Aristotle, substance and accidents. You talk about Trinity, you can talk about nature and person. I want to borrow concepts and words from faith that do not require the philosophy to make an act of faith. In particular, language of sign, symbol, and sacrament, because if you understand the concepts, they become very illuminating for discussing the human person, and especially the relationship between the bodily and non-bodily aspects of the person. And my claim is I, I, I did that without cheating. <laughs> very good. Well, that's fascinating. And again, the idea that you can look at the same subject matter from different perspectives, one of reason and one of faith, is a, mm -hmm. is a fascinating topic. And I know a lot of people um, are enriched by a faith perspective, even when they don't necessarily share it. I was mm -hmm. thinking about uh, your teacher, Paul Weiss. Could you tell us a little bit right. about him? He's, a, he's a, like a big-name philosopher in, a, in the oh, realm yeah, of American Society of America, the Review uh, of Metaphysics. I mean, he's 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 a giant uh, in uh, in contemporary philosophy, and he was an agnostic Jewish metaphysician who started studying symbolic logic at Harvard under uh, Alfred North Whitehead, and then met the great French Catholic scholar Etienne Gilson, read the Medievals under Gilson when everyone at Harvard poo-pooed the medievals and was reading St. Bonaventure, who convinced him that there was something that was real that wasn't physical, and he became a metaphysician. And while he himself said he was never religious, he was fascinated especially with Catholic theology. So he and I had very many conversations about uh, sacraments, uh, about ordination, virtue, heaven, the necessity of baptism, and we illuminated each other very uh, very greatly, but I wasn't required to surrender my faith, and he wasn't required to embrace my faith, and we still had very productive conversations. If you were to go to the typical American university, not a secular university today, and go in the philosophy department, uh, it would probably be the case that you would find few people who are philosophers who would openly affirm the existence of God. They may, might say it's an interesting idea. They might they might just out, out dismiss it. Mm -hmm. A few of them would say, yes, I affirm the existence of God as a matter of philosophy. Okay. Why do you think that is? Uh, why is it that so few people can, in contemporary secular philosophy departments would affirm the existence of God? Yeah. Well, um, my, my gracious answer is that they're, they're attending to other things. Uh, Postmodernism, in particular, which is the reigning paradigm today, uh, wants to uh, 
is true anything that involves systems, that involves universal claims, that involves a grand narrative. Now, if heaven forfend I were inclined to be uncharitable, I'd say they view God as a massive buzzkill. If there's real good and real evil and real consequences for falling short of good and real accountability from a personal God, well, that's going to ruin my weekend, so I don't want to hear it. So I leave it up to, to the listener to decide where on the spectrum between the charitable and uncharitable interpretation they want to place their bets. You talked about the value of philosophy in helping us to live humanly well. And you've also talked about faith and reason, looking at something, the same subject from, from somewhat different angles. How, how do you respond to the Catholic or the Christian who says, well, I don't really need philosophy. I have the faith. I have the word of God and the scripture and revelation and theology and spiritual theology and so on. Mm -hmm. What role is there for, for philosophy? In, well, in I, I would say, life? well, start naming me the great saints who would agree with you and show me where that is in scripture. It's difficult to defend on their own terms. And also, if you're interested not only in your own salvation, but winning souls for heaven, then you have to be able to speak in a language that is at least initially intelligible. You know, if, you, if I go into southern China and read John 3.16 out loud in English, which is what Anglican missionaries were doing at the beginning of the 20th century, they were astounded that no one asked for baptism. It was because what was said was, was unintelligible. So just walking into the Atheist Society of America and inviting people to come to Jesus is probably going to be a, a low-yield procedure. Okay, well, Father, Father um, we're just about out of time here, and I want to give you a chance to tell people again where they can hear your radio show. And I also want to make sure we mention the book Real Philosophy, Real People, which is available at Ignatius.com, our website, or at your local Catholic bookstore if it's open, and I hope it is open. Uh, people can go there. Where can people hear you on a regular basis on your radio show? I host a radio program called The Catholic Current on the Station of the Cross, which is based in Buffalo. We've got towers throughout the Northeast, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. We're on every podcast platform you can imagine. You can live stream the show uh, at thestationofthecross.com. And we also have our own app called the iCatholic Radio app. Uh, there's, there's great content throughout the network. And given all glory and honor to God, I think we're doing solid stuff here on, on the Catholic Current. Well, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me the range of guests that you have on your program. And, of course, the wit and charm that you've displayed here is there in super abundance. And it's also available in your wonderful book, Real Philosophy for Real People. Father Robert McTague, SJ, Society of Jesus, Warrior Priest and Philosopher. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. God's peace. God bless you. God bless your, your good work. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.